There's a scene in Godfather 2 where Diane Keaton is having this forbidden visit with her two children. She's been banished from the house, from their lives, so she's frantically drinking them in as she steals these precious moments. Connie, her sister-in-law, is desperately urging her to wrap it up because Michael is coming home. So she escapes out the kitchen to the back door, but she has to turn one last time to kiss them. Her son is holding back. He's sullen. He's hurt. Maybe he's scared to give her any affection. And she says, Anthony, please kiss me once. Then her face drops. Michael has appeared in the kitchen doorway. And the look on his face is, it's inscrutable. It's not placid, but it's vivid. Like anything could happen. Like he is feeling everything and nothing. So Al Pacino was about 30 years old when he was cast as Michael Corleone, and he was not the first choice by a long shot. Coppola wanted him, but the studio wanted Robert Redford, Warren Beatty, guys like that. So Pacino tested and tested and tested for the role, along with other actors like Martin Sheen, James Caan, Robert De Niro. But Coppola had a very smart editor, Marsha Lucas, and she said, you know, Pacino undresses you with his eyes. So casting is a collaborative process, and many voices chime in their ideas and opinions. But credit must be given to casting directors Jane Feinberg, Mike Fenton, and Vic Ramos. They have to get credit for putting these actors in front of the director, for putting them on the radar in the first place. So back to the scene. So Michael's face betrays nothing, but everything is there like shock at seeing her, anger that he's being disobeyed, hate, you know, that kind of a torturous hate that can only come from love, from betrayal, from so many things. This moment between Pacino and Keaton is just full of anticipation. You know, will he scream at her to get out? Will he strike her? Will he sweep her into his arms? Will he yell at the children? He does none of those things. He approaches, his hands casually in his pockets, his eyes take her in, they look her up and down, and then he quietly closes the door in her face. He turns and looks at the children, he still says nothing. He's he's not angry at them, but the message is crystal clear. Without a word, he is saying, we close the door on strangers. We close the door and shut them out of our lives. I really can't think of another actor who could do that with no words, no words at all. That is killer casting. Hello and welcome to Killer Casting. I'm Lisa Zambetti and I'm a casting director in Los Angeles and I cast film, big and small, TV, comic, dramatic, video games, new media, commercials, but I am probably best known for my work casting the long-running CBS show Criminal Minds. And you might also know me from a very successful podcast I do with an alum from Criminal Minds, former FBI behavioral analyst Jim Clementi 
and former New Scotland Yard victims advocate Laura Richards on a little show called Real Crime Profile on the Wondery Network. So quick story. So after years of doing Real Crime Profile, you know, we've covered many tragic cases, uh, but sometimes we've also covered dramatic TV shows based on true crime cases, shows like Mindhunter, People vs. OJ. And I loved breaking those apart with Jim and Laura. They comment from their vast law enforcement experience and me, well, I comment on the production side of things. So I started mulling and thinking about doing my own pod. I wanted to do something that let me deep dive and tear apart and amplify shows, movies, documentaries that I find incredible. Shows that I want to talk about with someone, with many someones. Shows that I obsess over and they tend to be dark and twisty and weird and wonderful. And many are in the crime genre, but some are in categories just all on their own. And the only criteria is that from my point of view, they have killer casting, which means that they probably also have amazing writing and masterful directions and many elements that make them immersive, that make them engrossing worlds that I get lost in. But I don't want to get lost alone. I need cohorts to help me navigate these worlds. And I couldn't think of two better cohorts. I'd rather do this than the guys I'm about to introduce you to right now. So first up, my former casting assistant. I'm so proud of him. He's now an accomplished casting associate in his own right. He's worked on a ton of hit shows. He's a talented actor, writer, director, and acting teacher. Please meet Texas Longhorn Brian Allen Hill. Hello, hello, hello. Happy to be here. Are you? Are you I'm happy? I'm totally happy to be here. I can't wait to jump in. Let's do it. I know. I can't wait for people to meet you and your big fat opinions. And next, I am thrilled to introduce you to this longtime friend of Real Crime Profile. He's been my wingman on book club episodes. He's been there to engage with our Real Crime Profile Facebook family. He's always sending me nuggets of wisdom and insight, and he's an accomplished producer all in his own right. The thunder from down under me, Dean Laffin. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, what an intro. What an intro. Thank you very much, Lisa. Thank you for having me, Brian. Great to be here. And uh, good day, listeners from down under. It's going to be fun. Yeah, coordinating this whole shindig was pretty interesting. It's uh, 8 o'clock for me and Brian in the eve. And what, 1 p.m. for you, Dean. Um, I'm squirreled away in my parents' house, in my childhood bedroom, literally recording this <laughs> on the floor, hopefully, hoping I'm not waking my father up, who will come barging in here any moment. Anyway, but here we go. Flashback, flashback. <laughs> so, Dean, this is all your fault. It literally is your fault that I kicked this off because I've been thinking about doing a podcast for a really long time. And you did what? You turned me on to what? Well, it's the little Aussie crime series that could. Mm-hmm. I was quite late to the party, but it's called Mr. In Between. And it's got a bit of quite the cult following uh, in the US. In fact, it's probably bigger in the US than it is in Australia. Not many people in Australia have stumbled across it. It's on FX in the US. It's a, a wonderfully understated, sometimes funny, sometimes poignant, sometimes very violent, terrific little Sydney underbelly type crime story. And, you know, this is available on Hulu, where I watched it. And you told me about it. And I was like, oh, I just finished watching something just really dreadful. And I was looking for something new. And I started watching it at eight in the morning. I binged both seasons 
the same day. And I felt really bereft because I didn't have anybody to talk about it with. We're not going to cover this on Real Crime Profile because it's not really based on a, a real case. So I thought this would be the perfect opportunity to just ramble on and on about something that I'm just in love with. And then I asked Brian to watch it. What's your, just your first hit on it, Brian? Just like, give me a little, like a bullet on it. The thing that, I, that I'm struck by with this show that I find absolutely refreshing, it's like a palate cleanser compared to what we get in the States by and large. But the phrase that kept coming to mind, and it's not absolutely dead on, but kind of follow me the banality of evil. You know what I mean? The kind of mundane quality of this guy's life and how everything works around the day job. It's not sensationalized in any way, shape or form. And to me, after so much of Man on Fire, which gets in heavy rotation on basic cable or The Equalizer, which seems to be on eight times a day, five times a month. This is the most laser kind of storytelling. Mm, It's like you're reading my mind, my notes, because something I wrote, it's like a day in the life of a hitman, just the nuts and bolts of the job. And I also wrote that there's no fat. There's no fat whatsoever Mm. in this show. Um, Yeah. So- And that's one thing I really want to give big props to FX because this is a very off-center show. And Dean mentioned it has a cult-like following. It does kind of feel like that. It is not built to be a commercial success. And that's a whole other story we're going to get into. But it's kind of the perfect first show for us to go into because the casting story alone on how Mm. this got cast Mm. could be a documentary all on its own. It's such an amazing casting story. And of course, it's about a killer. So it's in the crime genre. So, I mean, it's just... It's just a great show to kick off on. So folks, if you haven't watched the show yet, we're not going to give you any huge big spoilers. We're going to cover kind of the events in the first three episodes. That'll give you just plant the seeds for you, but you can certainly still, you're you're not going to be spoiled at what happens at the end of season one and certainly not at the end of season two. And if you have caught this little gem, then you're going to really enjoy our breakdown of it. Lisa, it's probably worth pointing out that uh, the episodes unusually are only 26 minutes long. So the first series is uh, only six eps. The second series is 11. So, you know, if you want to jump into this after listening to the pod, it's only six by 26, which for you sleepy ones out there is less than three hours. So uh, it doesn't take long to binge at all so it's which it's a- i didn't notice by the way until you pointed it out to me because <laughs> <it was laughs> they feel very rich i mean you don't feel rushed in any well in and, any and this is one of the notes that i made and you kind of touched on a little bit lisa but the economy of storytelling is breathtakingly good and this is the thing that i absolutely love about the show amongst other things the creators the creatives They allow the spaces to exist in dialogue or in the interactions between human beings. It's not jam-packed with soundtrack or dialogue. I I wrote that too. There was a a director that I worked with on one of the pilots last fall. She's a well-known actress and we were talking shop and she's fantastic. And she said, sometimes I still have to remind myself that it's all just a conversation. Every scene is just a conversation. The stakes are going to be different in every conversation, the relationships are going to be different. The circumstances that the characters find themselves in will be different, but it's still just a conversation. And I Mm -hmm. think that Mr. In-Between captures that. It's like the camera is a witness, not a judge. No, very much a voyeur, very much a voyeur. So I want to just kind of lay this out for the audience. Something that I love about the show is there's no lot exposition. Like you don't know who anybody is. Nobody walks in and says, hi, I'm your brother, you know, or whatever. (laughs) 
<laughs> because you know that happens. It literally happens, by the way. I want to talk about just the first scene of episode one, the first scene. And I want you to think back to the first time you watched it. The first scene opens up and there's just this guy and he's in profile. The first shot is not even a shot of his full face. You don't really know where they are. You just see a guy in profile and he's waiting and he's not acting like he's waiting. He's kind of slouchy. Finally, you see his face. And I looked at this face and I thought there was something familiar about his face. I should know who this is. Maybe he's a really well-known Aussie actor who's been around forever. You know, another Aussie would know who this guy is, but there's something just familiar about it. It's got thousands of miles on this face. This face has lived a life and seen a life. And there's just something about his eyes. They just kind of take everything in. And there's nothing aggressive about him. He's very slouchy and not aggressive, but there's something there that's coiled and ready mm -hmm. to strike. And he's just instantly iconic. The note that I had was that he looks absolutely unremarkable. He's not muscle bound. He's mm -hmm. not like, oh, he's the bad guy. He can blend in and out of a crowd. And there's just a kind of calm about yes. him that certainly doesn't indicate what's going on underneath that we discover mm -hmm. over episodes of what's at the core of him. But the surface of him is just calm business. The first scene really impacted me the first time I saw it, and I saw it again today, and it was the same feeling I had. The scene changed for me when we get a kind of wider shot of the two guys, and there's that wrought iron fence mm -hmm. with the spikes. And mm -hmm. I immediately had a sense of foreboding yeah, and it's the same feeling that you get when you're in a theater and somebody takes out a gun and puts it out on stage and everybody's right. attention is on the gun. It's That's how it guy. felt like. It's yeah, I, it felt like, holy cow. And the, the scene itself is so like, hey, 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 what up? You know what I mean? In terms of the dialogue, it's yeah. just like this, it's brimming over with this tension. When I'm watching something and I see an actor that I'm interested in, I just immediately look them up. I pause and I immediately look them up on IMDb Pro, right? Right. Because I, I can't wait to the end. I have to see, okay, what's this guy been in? I must have seen him in something. So I did that. In the first scene, I look up the lead actor, whose name is Scott Ryan, and he has done nothing. Nothing. I was in a state of shock and he's in his 40s, I guess. It's very unusual. I would say almost non-existent to find an actor in their 40s with that kind of self-possessed ease and knowledge of themselves and unself-conscious and have never acted before. Never. Well, I'm like angry. Acted, acted, <laughs> acted in his own movie. Right. You know, I mean, like, still, he directed. He directed still, one I mean, small thing. And right. then 13 years later. <laughs> anyway, so that's, but that, we're going to get to that story. But the fact that he has no training, he has no experience on camera, I just can't believe that because it takes mm -hmm. actors decades to have that kind of self possession and confidence. And the audience feels confident when you look at him. How did you kind of, uh, I guess, how did you reconcile the, the naysayers, so to speak? Or was it just a matter of just believing that they were wrong and you were right? Yeah, I just believed that I was right, basically. Um, I'm a bit sort of pig-headed in certain ways, I suppose. And I just, 
you know, I just, it's funny because I don't really believe in myself in a lot of other areas, but, uh, you know, in this area, I just felt that I could pull it off. I thought, you know, as an actor, I could pull it off, which was weird because I had no training. I've never done anything. Um, so I, know, I don't know where I got that idea from. Um, <laughs> and I never really done anything as a writer. Was it, do you, do you feel like it was because you, like you had this character in your head, you knew him kind of inside out? Yeah, I, I felt that I knew him, but I also felt, I just, I just felt that as an actor, I could pull it off, you know. I, uh, and I don't know why. I don't know whether it was from watching other actors or I just, I really don't know why I, I thought that and why I had that self belief that I could do it, um, and do it, you know, really well. So just in that first scene, the bullet is that he's an enforcer and he throws a guy over a balcony because he, fucked something up for his boss. He doesn't puff his chest up. There's no machismo there. Brian, how would this go if this were sort of a normal, you know, first of all, he would be buffed and big guns and And gorgeous, gorgeous and square jawed and wearing a leather jacket. And And um, he'd be, he'd be acting the holy shit out of it. And he'd be breathing heavy. He'd be be doing the David Tennant school of acting of breathing excessively oh, shut up when he acts <laughs> shut Jesus up Jesus Christ and there would be some kind of of uh, a buzzword that he would say before he threw the guy over the you know there would be some kind of make Catch my phrase, day some yeah, kind yeah, of yeah, right exactly anyway so he throws the kid over it's fine uh, and then the next few scenes you just see him being alone like we were saying a day in the life he gets up at seven they spend a lot of time showing him just taking a shower, brushing his teeth. And on that point, Lisa, that shower scene is amazing because he's just tipped the guy over the balcony, totally unexpected, although not now for for that particular scene if you're listening. But that scene in the shower, the water's falling on his bald head. It's all shot very cold and very clinical. Then he looks down and there's a little ladybug crawling around inside the shower and he puts his pinky finger out and he lets it crawl onto his finger and then he puts it outside of the shower. And it's obviously a juxtaposition of him being violent. But for him, it's, as you said, back uh, in that scene, it's just a job. It's work. He's not emotional about it. He's never emotional about his work. That's his job. That's what he does. And um, he he does as much as he needs to do. And then it's over and away we go. And that ladybug scene is like the first example of the code. He definitely has a code that he lives by. There are rules that he engages with, with the world, that make the world right. That is mm-hmm. just one example of the innocence and mm-hmm. moving it from a place of danger to relative safety on the towel. It's such a little moment. It was a much heavier moment upon second viewing, mm-hmm. yes. right? You know what I mean? It, we noticed that he never, outside of his work, so he's got his work and his home life, and in his work, he gets paid to precipitate violence. Right. Mm. He is paid to stand over, collect money, paid as a hitman, murder for hire. But back in his personal life, he never precipitates violence ever, not once. But he also will not stand. As he says later, you can't let people walk all over you. Right. You Mm. can't do it. That's his code. It's like you treat me with respect. I'll treat you with respect. But if you disrespect me and my family, I'll walk away if I can. But if I can't, well. But this is something that really jumped out at me this time around watching it today was Freddie, who he works for. It's his boss, the guy who gives him his jobs and he works security for. He's weaker. He's weaker than Ray. The power structure is very much like 
Ray is in control. Freddie is an out of control, degenerate gambler. He's late with his debts. Ray's has him over a barrel and he doesn't take shit from him. And that is something that is also very different than what we're used to in these kind of crime dramas. The boss is always omnipresent and the most powerful and doesn't suffer fools. Freddie is very much a foolish man. Yeah, I'm glad that you brought that up because I wanted to get into the orbit of characters around him as they start to introduce them and how he fits in with the rest of the world. So Freddie, the strip club owner, is played by the amazing Damon Harriman. He's just broken through in the last couple of years here in the U.S. with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And, you know, I saw him play a woman in an Australian series that I just adored. But anyway, he's got this gigantic head. I don't know if you noticed that, but he has a huge head. And I love that. Uh, is this and Ebert decades ago said that some of the best actors have huge heads. They just literally take up more space on the screen. And Damon Harriman definitely does that. But it's so funny because for a strip club owner, he's incredibly fussy and incredibly well-dressed Italian cashmere V-neck with the Gucci loafers, strip so club owner. He's, he's rocking the Don Johnson no socks there for a while. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and he stands in stark relief to Ray, who I'm very sure that Scott Ryan just wear his own clothes. I mean, he does not look wardrobed whatsoever, which is my favorite kind of wardrobe. Yeah, because most of the time, unless he's at work, most of the time he's wearing black jeans. Ill-fitting Ill jeans. Know, gray, like, yeah, yeah, gray sweatshirt and like a blue. Like uh, a training jacket, or, or but yeah. not even the cool kind that a lot yeah, of Yeah, like a blue windbreaker or something yeah. like that. Or, again, just fitting into a crowd, like not standing out in any way, shape, or form. Right. Incidentally, Lisa, with uh, Damon, did he set his own unique version of being typecast when you get to play one character, that being Manson, not only right. in for Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, but also in Manhunter in the same year? In, that's, mind, in Mindhunter, yeah, yeah, yeah. That Mindhunter is. That is very thing, unusual. Yeah. And some directors would be like, well, I don't want to use him so I fucking played Manson, but, you know, mm. clearly... He was incredible. So you start to meet the people in Ray's world. So there's him. And then you meet his, he, he, this is the greatest scene. He just kind of drives up to this very suburban looking house. <laughs> and Ding Dong picks up this little girl, runs out. She's Asian. I guess in this situation, she's, she's biracial. And not a word is really spoken. There's just this unspoken kind of, weird tension and you see he's picking up his daughter from his ex-wife and this is the one like really the only the biggest criticism i have of the show is that this is really kind of the one diversity that you have in the show is the little girl and the mom i wish there were more i wish there were more indigenous people in this show but we meet his daughter and he's got just a really interesting rapport with her. He's not a goo goo gaga daddy's girl kind of a daddy whatsoever. And he brings her over right away. Again, nothing is explained. There's no exposition about who these people are, what their relationship is. You just observe it. You observe this is the day he picks up his daughter and this is what they do. They go over to a guy who is, you're, you don't know who he is, but Ray, uh, the main character, brings him over to. The brother's house. Okay, so Brian, will you talk about this actor who plays his brother, Bruce? I absolutely adore this actor. He's a guy who is suffering from motor neurons, so it's like a muscular dystrophy. It's like a deterioration, right? And so his speech is garbled. The specificity of his speech is absolutely remarkable. And I love the fact that the show allows 
the realistic speech deterioration to be a part of the characterization. They make no attempt to clean it up so he can be understood. The authenticity of the portrayal of the experience of this man going through this condition is unbelievable, remarkable. So I'm going to tell on Zambetti a little bit. So Zambetti is quite an accomplished writer herself, and she wrote a play that I was in back in Denver in the mid-90s. And it was a play called The Number 45. And the lead character, Humblebrag, has cerebral palsy. And so there's a very specific speech thing that happens and a physical thing that happens with people who have cerebral palsy. But the thing about it, and I worked with somebody at the time who had severe cerebral palsy, and it was really hard for them to be understood. But their eyes, everything came through their eyes. And when I see the actor who plays Bruce, and I, I don't have his name at the tip of my tongue, like when I look at his face and I see him engaging with Brittany and with Ray, his eyes are on fire. Mm. It's almost like he's trapped in his body. Mm. Well, he is. He's trapped in his body. And his ability to play that in such a meaningful way, in such a nuanced and subtle way, is just breathtaking. It is. And I want to know. I want to know so much about his backstory. Yeah. And you'd never, you never no. know. You have no, no idea if he the was only, in the life of crime or... Well, yeah. The only clues that you have is that in one episode down the road, there's a tattoo on his neck. And I believe in an episode that we're going to talk about in a moment, when you see a close-up on his hands, he has a tattoo on his finger, which mm-hmm. doesn't necessarily equate to a life of crime. But given mm-hmm. his yeah. relationship with Ray... It would make sense. The actor that uh, plays Bruce is amazing. His name is Nicholas Cassim. Props mm-hmm. to him. And yeah, as you mm-hmm. said, Brian, he is such, such a beautiful character. And he just grows and grows throughout the, throughout the series, doesn't he? Mm-hmm. And yeah. something that really got right that I have seen watered down in other shows, but even though it's hard for the audience to maybe understand his speech, it's not that hard for Ray and Britty because they know mm-hmm. him so well and they're used to it. And that certainly did happen, Brian, in my friend that I based my play, The Number 45, on with his cerebral palsy. After knowing him, I could understand Absolutely. What he meant, what he was saying. But to somebody else, it it would be very difficult. But they play it like, I totally understand what you're saying and, you know, fuck you and all that stuff. Hey, hey, just let me ask you guys, as two Americans, and of course I'm an Aussie, how did you find it understandable in terms of the accents? But also, did you find it was peppered with a lot of Australian vernacular where you went, oh, I know what that is from the context, but I don't know what that that word is foreign to me? Or was it pretty much 100% digestible? I'm curious. I thought I got it. I lived in England for a really long time. So a lot of things like a cuppa I heard, I've heard forever. I think there are a couple of moments, but it's so clear what is meant. We wouldn't say that, oh, I bashed him. We would say I kicked his ass or something like that. So little things like that were a little bit different. I don't know, Brian, what do you think? It's an unfortunate feature of getting older. So as an example, when I watch Peaky Blinders, I have to have closed captioning on. <laughs> because, and it's not just the accent, but it's also the sound mix too. They just don't get it exactly right. Hulu, when I turned it on, automatically went to closed captioning. I didn't have to do anything. So I just kept it on. And I was still able to discern and follow story. I, I would laugh out loud when they would mess up. I think one part, Ray or somebody called somebody cunts, and they did the CC as counts. And I was like, <laughs> they got it wrong. They didn't get it right. He said, cunts. Mm-hmm. 
Also going family. Thanks. Very nice. You live in Kirribilli? Yeah. Huh? Hartley Crescent. I like Kirribilli. It's a very, very nice place. You stay here with him, mate, all right? Where are you going? I'm going to Kirribilli. Uh, look, um, uh, I'll, I'll give you your money, okay? Um, I don't want any money. What do you mean? Well, it's not my job to collect money. It's his job. What's your job? My job's to make you sorry you didn't pay when you had the chance. I want to move on to just a couple other uh, characters I just want to talk about and uh, before we move on. So early in the episode, kind of a young new enforcer is introduced to Ray that Freddie has brought on. This is kind of the new guy and he's young and he's sort of hot blooded and he's ready to go out there and bust some heads. And he's almost like a puppy and how excited he is to go out there and bring home the bacon for Freddie. And it's funny because they're both sent out to do a job to collect some money for Freddie. The young, the young newbie, I'll call him newbie Nick. His name is Nick. Yeah, he tries Nick. to start up a conversation in the car with Ray, kind of like, so where are you from? <laughs> you know, and Ray is like, he's just having none of it. From the very first scene uh, that we spoke about already on the balcony, well, it, the scene sets the scene for Ray as a character. One of the things I love about this is he never answers questions. So in that scene, when the guy that comes down that he ends up tipping over the balcony, at one point he asks Ray a question and Ray just looks past him and just as if he's deaf and then just asks him his own question and ignores what the guy said and he does it all the time and it's very, imagine in real life, that is very unsettling, right? And that's part of his kind of menace where you just can't get through to him. He's got his shield up and he's like, I don't care what you say, I'm here for me and my agenda, not yours. It's just, it's brilliant. And does exactly. it throughout the series. Yeah. So these two, you know, knuckleheads go to try to collect <laughs> some money and they find this pencil pushing guy that they're supposed to get the money from. And right away, newbie Nick is right in his face. Motherfucker, I'm going to fuck you up. Give me the money, blah, blah, blah. You know, and Ray's just kind of hanging back in the doorway, just kind of watching with this sort of, just this world weary look on his face and a slight smile. Oh, and, that's, and that's the thing. It is the calm detachment. Again, it is this code. You did something wrong and you have to pay a price. That's just how it goes. That's how this world works. There's something that Ray does too, and it happens a handful of times, but it's what I call the Ray smile. Mm-hmm. It's absolutely chilling. When he smiles at somebody, like in a certain way, I guess in kind of actor parlance, you would say he's playing the opposite. Okay, mm-hmm. well, that's a technical mm-hmm. phrase. The actual event of him smiling the way he does, he looks so menacing and absolutely mm-hmm. evil just because of he's bald, got the goatee. All of it conspires to like create this effect of absolute menace. To me, it just indicates this deep, deep reservoir of absolute rage that he manages to keep contained on a minute-to-minute basis. I think that's mm-hmm. the thing that makes this character so visceral to me when I watch is the understanding that just below the surface is this roiling hurricane 
he manages. It's just yeah, that smile is not him being friendly. It's a oh. mass- it's a massive red flashing light to whoever he's looking at, going, "You yeah. are in big trouble." And you're talking about that code, and in the same episode, there's that infamous scene with the ice cream and with Brit. Yep. And as he speaks about later in therapy, he's going, "If you disrespect in prison, you can get." really messed up because his character spent time in prison. And and it was hilarious when there's a running gag with Brit, she levies fines on everyone that comes within her orbit for, for swearing. So she's got this little virtual swear jar. And these guys swear at Ray. As Ray walks off with her, she says, they owe me $4, Dad. As you said, Brian, without any pretension overacting, he's not chewing scenery. They're just walking along, licking the ice cream. And he just says quite laconically, yeah, I'll get it off him later, love. And you just know, oh, yeah, he will. Let me just walk it back a little bit. I want to set up the scene. Ray is being daddy to Brit and they're having this sweet little walk around having ice cream. And there's nothing funnier than a big tough guy licking off an ice cream cone. I'm sorry. That's just one of the great dichotomies of of life. But they're walking along and then this 20 year old kid kind of body checks Brit and knocks her ice cream onto the floor. And it's just super rude and doesn't apologize. And, And Ray starts to go at him, but then pulls himself back because he's with his daughter and he doesn't want to get in a fight in front of her. But his eyes just clock everything, calculate everything. You can just see the wheels spinning on that this isn't over. That's gone into his memory bank. He's angry inside, as you say, Brian. That would be infuriating for him, but there's no way he's going to let you know that, right? He's not going to let those guys know that. And it's like, okay, I'm just going to put that one aside. I'm going to put that down because his main priority is Brit, right? He's got a weekend with her probably every second weekend or whatever, Mm -hmm. he's not going to let these dickheads ruin his time with Brit and he's not going to be violent in front of her. Never. He would never do that, right? So he walks away, but he he doesn't forget. No, and he he tracks down these two bajiga loops and kicks the shit out of one of them and the other one runs away. But you get this sense of his lack of control when it comes to protecting one of his own. It was not a good idea to do that. He should have known that this is going to get him in a bunch of hot water with, we would call it social services. Brian, anything to say about this scene? So the thing that struck me by the scene was that he's having this moment with his daughter. He walks away and then he just happens to chance upon them and makes the decision. There are two events that happen in this last sequence at the end of episode one that change the course of his life. And they Mm. happen in such an organic way. I'm aware that I'm seeing fate kind of at work and seeing his life change, and also laying the groundwork for the rest of the season, these two Mm. events, right? Because everything kind of springs from these things. And the thing that I'm struck by is if he had just walked away from those two guys, seeing them in an alley, he wouldn't have met the lovely girl next door by chance. As an audience member, I immediately, because I'm selfish, and I think most audience members are, they related to themselves. We think Mm -hmm. back to, ah, I had a moment just like that where the course of my life completely changed. It's such a quiet, but so pivotal in what happens, both really, really good in beating Allison again, and really, really bad in terms of bashing this one guy and that lands him in hot water. We didn't mention Allison, but she's somebody that he meets in the dog park. She's a very attractive girl, but just so down to earth. They didn't get somebody super young to play this love interest. And they never really are super lovey-dovey, flirty-wordy. It's just two normal people. But he talks about at the end of their first date, if the energy doesn't match, then it's not going to work. And these two 
they bust balls, but they line up with each other. And I completely agree with you, Lisa, on this casting. There's not a false note. The young lady playing Brittany, she is so believable and she is so natural in her exchanges with her Uncle Bruce and Mm -hmm. walking down the street with her dad talking about what she wants for her birthday. So this is a perfect time to talk about the casting story behind this because it's just incredible. And I think we've already talked about Scott Ryan. This is the first time he's ever done anything ever. And he could have, I'm sure he could have sold this pilot many, many times. His co-producer, Nash Edgerton, who's brother of... Joel Edgerton. Anyway, they could have sold this many, many times um, if they would have cast Joel Edgerton (laughs) in the part or some other big name. But no, they stuck to keeping Scott Ryan in this lead part. And that is just an incredible feat. And kudos to um, FX for supporting that. Um, Ten years, Lisa, they were shopping that and they refused to compromise. We'll get into this the next time about people I know who have this exact situation that they've been waiting for, including maybe Brian, (laughs) you know, waiting for uh, to happen. But then the other cast, and of course they surrounded him. He's a newbie, but they've surrounded him with great actors like Damon and such. And then Brittany, go ahead, Dean, tell us, let's tell them where Brittany comes from. In the show, you see Ray's character, his wife appears to Chinese, uh, I think, and in the show notes, we'll put a link to some interviews, um, both press and uh, and on YouTube. And Nash was casting, 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 trying to find the character for Brit. And Nash's wife said, hey, why don't we try Chika? So C-H-I-K-A, Chika, is the name of Nash's real-life daughter. So clearly his wife and uh, Chika's mom is Asian. And so they tested her and, and Nash said, no, this will never work. Don't be stupid. I can't cast my own daughter you know, Godfather 3, right? And so uh, <laughs> so anyway, they tested her and, and she tested off the charts and people have said, wow, the chemistry between Brit and the character Ray is so good. Well, of course, she's less than 15 years old and Nash and Ray have been friends for 15 years. That means that she grew up around Ray. I'll bet uh, it's an Australian tradition. If you've got really close friends of your parents, you call them uncle. So they're not your real uncle, but she would have been calling him Uncle Ray since birth. I'll guarantee it. So the, and we'll get into this later too, a lot of the plot stories are drawn directly. There's an infamous Father Christmas, Santa Claus, Easter Bunny, unicorn scene coming up, and that is taken directly from a conversation between Nash and Chica. That sort of background, I think, makes for the chemistry, and it's just brilliant. You can see it. But, Brian, isn't isn't this incredible, though? Here's a lead actor who's going to carry the fucking show on his back, never acted. Here is his girl playing his daughter. How many times a week had to cast kids, has to carry an enormous load, never acted before this kid. And you got two of them in scene after scene after scene, and... It's so natural. It's incredible. It just does not happen like this. They're just having a conversation. The the scene that that Dean was just talking about with the Santa and Jesus and the unicorn, like he's eating pistachios. Like he's involved in an activity, right? And having this conversation with his daughter. I think one of the greatest things about this show is the fact that your two main creative sources, your director, and your writer, who's also your lead actor, direct and write every episode. The, the thing about this show, there is an ensemble feel to it, like repertory company of actors. Yeah. Whereas in this country, you get in a series, it's like you've got 
a director having to drop into an established yeah. cast. I understand. Yeah, the director is the guest. The director is the guest at the at the table. Nash, I believe, was the editor on the Magician, which is the source material, the movie. Yeah, the, the there was yeah for this. Correct. Yeah, editor. yeah. Right. 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 Shot it originally back in two thousand and five on a budget of three thousand dollars on mini DV. And it was a fly-on-the-wall mockumentary. You said earlier, Brian, that it's got this day-in-the-life feel. And so the origin of of this first series was that he took roughly the rough arc of the original fly-on-the-wall doco that he did, and then he's stretched that in. Not stretched it because it's three hours, but he's filled in bits and pieces around it, but it came from that, So, which is why it's got that sort of day-in-the-life feel. And then Nash saw it in 2005 and was blown away. And at some point, Nash managed to get, I think it was 450K Australian Film Commission or something to recut and polish it up and then try and get it onto the circuit and successful. They did it. And so there was kind of two versions of The Magician, the very original homebrewed mm-hmm. one, and then the polished one, which Nash produced, I think, and, and edited. Sadly, it didn't get anywhere at that point. And then it was, I think that was 2008. And so then it took another In 10 2010, years. 2010, I looked it up. 10, thank you, yeah. yeah. So then it took another, what, eight years for them to to get to FX. So it's had a... It's had a difficult birth. It reminds yeah, me a little bit the, of Billy Bob and, and Sling Blade. I mean, a, a little bit yeah. like. Um, but, but there's it, a shorthand between those two guys, a story from Nash and Chicka incorporating that into a script happens seamlessly because Scott understands the rhythms of the young lady because mm-hmm. he's been around her since she was little and has known Nat. So there's mm-hmm. an effortless quality that comes through in huge ways. Yeah, you're right. And you see it visually when you see them interviewed together. They're sitting on a couch together. You know, that cliche, they look like, you know, an old married couple that finish (laughs) each other's sentences. They actually don't finish each other's sentences, but you can just see they're so calm and at peace with each other. And as Mm -hmm. you said, Brian, this is the result of this and, and the quality of it is what happens when you let two people do what they do. And this is a personal vision, not of one person, but of two people, right? This is Nash and Scott given free reign by FX, credit to them, and they're in their groove and doing their thing, and, and this is what you get when that happens. Yeah. Well, we got to wrap it up here, but we hope that we've encouraged you to check out this very, very special series, Mr. In-Between on Hulu and also on FX. And we're going to come back next time and break down uh, episodes two and three just to give you a little more analysis on what we see when we watch through our POV, a, such a special show like this. So I want to thank my sexy beasts, Brian and Dean, for joining me on my maiden <laughs> voyage of killer casting. You guys are awesome. I can't believe you, you two act like mates who have known each other forever. I mean, the rapport between you. Oh, well, we've been talking behind your back for weeks since you introduced oh, me. So, okay. that, so that explains it. it. That's yeah. what it Daily is. phone calls. Absolutely. Okay, so for now, we're going to sign off for casting. Killer Casting was created and produced by Lisa Zambetti. Sound editing by Dean Laffin from Real World Productions. Logo art by April Laffin. Theme music provided by Amphibious Zoo Music and Big Fat Opinions provided by Brian Allen Hill.